After Pharaoh refused to release the Hebrews from Egypt, God began to inflict plagues in a divine demonstration of power and displeasure. Despite nine plagues of escalating severity bringing disaster and misery upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Pharaoh would still not release the Israelites. The Lord sent his tenth and final plague, the plague on the firstborn. The Lord instructed his people to sacrifice a lamb for a meal on the night of the plague and to daub the blood of the sacrifice on the doorposts of their houses. And the Lord said to his people, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. After the plague was sent, Pharaoh released the people of God and sent them on their way. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Once the Israelites had left, Pharaoh changed his mind and regretted letting them go. In his anger he gathered his army and pursued them. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Hahiroth, opposite Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant.
Well, it is great to see everybody. Thank you very much for uh, that welcome. Very warm welcome from me to you, uh, Kingsgate. And uh, it's great to be here and it's great to be bringing you part four of our uh, series as we continue looking through the life of Moses from the book of Exodus. And today in the passage, uh, we get to the central point, really, of the book of Exodus, the Exodus itself. And obviously, that was quite a long reading there. So to help us get to all of it, to get right to the heart of it, what I want to do, I want us to tackle it from one particular vantage point. And that is, I want you to imagine yourself as one of the Israelites standing on the shores of the Red Sea. And you know that you have been uh, released from slavery in Egypt, slavery into which you were born and generations of your family have been part of that cruel slavery for many, many years. But you've just been released by the Lord through the event of the Passover. And then the Lord has led you uh, by a cloud by day, by a fire by night into your freedom. But then curiously, you find that your path to freedom seems to be blocked somewhat because you find the Red Sea, this massive expanse of water in front of you. And then as you turn around, you notice something coming in the distance. Uh, perhaps you hear it at first. Maybe it sounds like a sort of rustle. That be, maybe it sounds like the, the start of a storm or something like that. Perhaps you feel the pounding in the ground. Maybe it feels like the start of an earthquake. And then you look out into the distance behind you, and actually you can see that somebody is pursuing you. And after a little while, you realize that you can't blame it on a trick of the light anymore. You realize to your abject terror that actually it is Pharaoh and the Egyptian army coming after you. And all around you, people are starting to scream in fear and they start to take it out on your leader, Moses, you know, saying, why did you bring us out? There weren't enough graves back there in Egypt. We had to come out to die in the desert. And there you stand. Uh, you are trapped. You're in an impossible situation and it appears as if there is no way out. But unbeknownst to those people complaining, actually you and those Israelites are about to encounter the God who makes a way. And maybe today, as I ask you to imagine that, some of you don't have to dig too deep into your imaginations to imagine that. Perhaps you'd say, actually, that's what it feels like for me. I feel like I've got an enemy pursuing me, like there's no way out, like I'm in an impossible situation and I can't see my way through it. You know, I'm stuck between the devil and the deep blue sea, or as somebody has put it, I feel like I'm stuck between the Pharaoh and the deep red sea. And I don't know what that situation is for you. Maybe it's a financial situation, bills to pay, you just can't see a way out of it. Maybe it's a, a relational situation. Maybe it's a sin issue that you're stuck in. Uh, maybe it's a health issue. Whatever it is, you feel like you're stuck in that impossible situation. Or maybe you're not stuck in the impossible situation, but you are at least witness to an impossible situation. Maybe it's somebody else, a friend or a member of your family, or perhaps I can use an example, which I think will apply to all of us. Maybe we look at our country, and we want to see it turned around for Jesus. But sometimes it just appears like there's nothing but the enemies of Christianity all around us, and we can't see a way through for the good news of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, whether you're stuck in an impossible situation or you can just see an impossible situation, every single one of us wants to encounter the God who makes a way through. And to go back to that situation, to go back to that Israelite on the shores of the Red Sea, if it was my job to preach to them today, what I'd want to do is I'd want to preach a mes message to give them hope, to give them faith that God is going to make a way. And I'll be able to do that with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that actually soon they're about to encounter the God who makes a way. 
And if you're stuck in or looking at an impossible situation today, and I'm preaching to you, I can't do exactly that with the benefit of hindsight. But I can, with the benefit of faith, I can, looking into the future, prepare you and preach to you a message that'll give you faith, that'll give you hope, that you might make the most of your encounter with the God who makes a way. And you know what? I'm not coming to you as a disinterested observer today without going into detail, just something going on in our lives and our family at the moment. Which, <clears throat> which from the outside, at least in the natural, uh, looks to be an impossible situation with no way out. But I know that we can encounter the God who makes a way. <clears throat> and so as I speak to you this morning, I don't want to just speak to you about the God who makes a way. I don't want you to just listen and hear a story about the God who makes a way. Rather, as I speak to you today, I want us all in faith to actually encounter the God who makes a way. And there are three things that I would share with that Israelite and three things that from this passage that I would share with you to build your faith, to build your hope that we might make the most of the encounter with the God who makes a way today. And the first one is this. First thing we can do is this. Look back and rejoice. Can you say that for me, please? So as that Israelite stands on the shores of the Red Sea and finds themselves in this impossible situation, they can actually look back to their very near history and see that actually the Lord has already delivered them from an impossible situation, that is slavery in Egypt. I mean, think about it. God has sent nine plagues and Pharaoh still refuses it to let them go. So at that particular point, they are thinking, we're actually stuck here. This is impossible. There's no way out. And yet, through the event of the Passover, they could look back and say, God freed us then, he can do it again. They could look back and rejoice, knowing that he's delivered us from one impossible situation. Why can't he deliver us from this one? And it's always good for us, isn't it? When we're in situations that feel impossible and it feels like there's no way out, to be able to look back and remind you and rejoice and remind yourselves of times when you felt trapped, you felt stuck, you felt like there's no way out, but God delivered you from that and he can do it again. And I've shared with you uh, before, but one uh, in, felt like an impossible situation uh, in my life was when I went from being an accountant to becoming a teacher. I felt, not by, led by uh, cloud by day and fire by night, but nevertheless, as well as I know the still voice of the Lord, I sensed that I was led into teaching. I was absolutely sure of it. But that didn't make it easy at all. And I can remember my whole first term, or first sitting as we called it, in the financial training center where I got my first teaching job. I remember the whole of that just seemed like an impossible situation. I just felt like there was no way through. I can remember one of my earliest ever classes. Um, I went in on the Monday morning. I had to teach 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. Uh, it was one of the biggest classes I'd dealt with so far. Uh, there were 39 chartered accountants looking at me, terrifying sights, I'm sure uh, you'd agree. And I remember going in on that Monday morning, just thinking, I can't do this. And I remember going in and I put uh, uh, two bottles of water on the desk in front of me and a cup of coffee. I thought, I'll have the cup of coffee for the morning, you know, bottle of water to wet my whistle, and if I need a spare, I've got that covered as well. I was in such a nervous state that three quarters of an hour in, I'd drunk all three. Uh, still had an hour and a quarter to go to the first break. I was actually dying for the toilet. It was horrible. And I remember that whole first week of that teaching, I remember my car, as it is now, just became my sort of private prayer closet as I'd just every morning go in, just pleading with the Lord to get me through the day and come home every evening just rejoicing or asking forgiveness, depending on how it had gone during that day. 
I still remember going home on that Friday night, just punching the air and rejoicing in my car as I was driving back from Nottingham. Just thinking, I can't believe the Lord has got me through this. And the whole of that first sitting seemed like that. I remember there'd be incidents along the way where I'd pray and the Lord would deliver me and I'd rejoice about it. I remember there was one time I was teaching one particularly difficult class. And the difficulty here was that they were just clever. In fact, they were all cleverer than me. Um, I, I was teaching it all really, really badly. They'd understand it from my bad explanations and still understand it better than me afterwards. They can work out. I remember one particular day I was teaching and I was thinking, I've got, to, I've got to make sure I eke this out across the day. I've got to stretch these subjects out because I knew if I didn't, then at the end of the day, I'd have to start teaching them a topic that frankly, I just hadn't had time to prep. I didn't know what it was. I thought if I get there, I'm going to turn over the page. It's going to be the first time they've seen it and the first time their teacher's seen it. So I was trying to stretch things out, but they were so clever. They were just getting through everything. I was thinking, you sure we didn't want more time? Do you want a longer break? They were like, no, no, let's just, let's just move on. I was thinking, fine, we'll do that. Anyway, we get into the afternoon. I failed to actually stretch things out. So I'm thinking, okay, just now I have to bite the bullet. Let's see how this goes. Just as I was getting towards it, the fire bell went off. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was just thinking, hallelujah, Lord. Let this place burn. <laughs> <clears throat> May everybody be safe. May they have insurance. But let this... No. I couldn't believe it. I mean, we got back in the classroom. I'd say, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to tackle this one now. You know. Tell you what, we'll pick it up first thing tomorrow. I had a whole evening to look at it. It was glorious. I remember there was another time. A uh, class very troublesome for very different reasons. Uh, there were these two ladies. I won't, I won't name them. But uh, uh, still, 11 years of teaching experience now. I can still say these were the most two disruptive ladies. Grown women, these were. Quite pathetic, really. <laughs> they were the most disruptive that I ever came across. And it's funny. On their own, they were okay. okay? They were usually ineffective. But put them together, and they were just a force to be reckoned with. It's kind of like Lennon and McCartney, but a lot less pleasant to listen to. And... <laughs> I remember coming in in the morning when it suddenly dawned on me, oh, it's that class, isn't it? And I came in and I could only see one of the ladies. And I hardly dared to hope, but I went up to her and I said, oh, where's your friend today? She said, oh, she can't make it in today. And I was thinking, oh my God, she was good as gold all day. I couldn't believe it without the other one. But I'd pray and the Lord would take me through these. And I remember after that whole first sitting, it just felt like this big boot camp experience that I'd been through. And I'm pleased to say that my second sitting, my third sitting, and then when I became a lecturer and when I started preaching and teaching, which I believe is part of the reason why the Lord led me into it, I still come across what feel like impossible situations where you're just scared, you don't want to be there, you want to run away. But I can always look back and rejoice on those experiences where I thought that was impossible. He got me through that. He can do it again. And that is what this Israelite can do, stood on the shores of the Red Sea. They can look back to that impossible situation stuck in slavery in Egypt and see that the Lord delivered them from that. They can do it again. And it's only happened just moments before, but they can look back and rejoice and know they've already encountered the God who made a way. Why can't he make a way out of this one? See, going back to that event, what happens is after the nine plagues that God has sent to try and convince Pharaoh to let the uh, Israelites go, you may know about the plagues, he sends the, turns the Nile to blood, he rains down uh, frogs and uh, locusts and gnats, and there's a, a, a plague on the cattle, there's a plague of darkness, and none of them seem to get through Pharaoh's stubbornness, his hardness of heart. And then eventually, and it's not that God wants to do this kind of thing. It's kind of the same thing when you declare war on somebody when they're doing something evil. Nobody wants to go to war, but there has to come a time if someone won't give in that God declares his tenth and final plague. 
and it is a scary plague, is the plague on the firstborn. That is that God in figurative, figurative language will fly over Egypt and bring judgment on Egypt by striking down the firstborn of every family. And of course we have questions when we see these flashes of divine holiness and righteous judgment in Scripture. And it's okay to have these questions. But one thing contextually that's good to understand is that actually Egypt was a culture of primogeniture. Okay? You have every permission from me to forget that word straight away. But what it means is this. They had a culture of the firstborn. That is that the firstborn was the one that ruled the roost. The one that would grow up to rule over everybody else with an iron fist. Think about it then. These Israelites have been in slavery for years and seen generation after generation of their fathers and forefathers and so on grow up to be enslaved bitterly and cruelly, it tells us right at the beginning of Exodus, by this firstborn as they grow up. This is the one that put their foot on the necks of the Israelite slaves. And the other thing we should consider is this, is sometimes we just think about God as just a nice, kind English gentleman. But actually, the New Testament tells us to consider both the severity of God and the kindness of God. That is, God is just about passionate of punishing things like Pharaoh and Egypt and actually the whole culture of one person enslaving another that is in his righteous, holy judgment. He's just as passionate about that as he is in his love and his mercy. And just as we see his severity here, and we should consider that, we also see his kindness to the Israelites. As in that impossible situation, he makes a way out for them. That is, he tells them that they should take a lamb, a year-old lamb in the prime of its life, a lamb without blemish. They should sacrifice that lamb and have it as a meal. And take the blood of that lamb and daub it on the doorposts of their houses. It says in Exodus 12, 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Hence the term Passover. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So they are under the judgment, but because the lamb dies in their place and because they are sheltered by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, is this ringing any bells at all? We'll talk about that a little bit later. But because of that, God has made a way and thus they find their freedom and they're off on their way out of bondage, out of slavery and into freedom. And actually the Passover wasn't just a one-off event. It was a one-off event that the Lord always wanted them to look back on. He commemorated this. He wanted them to commemorate it and celebrate that the Lord had done this. That's why Passover was a meal instituted they have every year to remind them of what he'd done. Because God wants them to look back, see what he did for them, rejoice and know that he can do it again. And what I'm exhorting you to do today is if you're in an impossible situation or you're looking at an impossible situation, I want you to dig into your memory bank and I want you to pull out your own personal Passovers that you can think of times he got you through those impossible situations in the past that you might rejoice and know that he can do it again right now. So that's our first thing, that we can look back and rejoice. The second thing I tell that Israelite and I tell you is this, that we can stand firm and endure. Again, could you say that for me, please? Stand firm. It's great to be able to look back and see the wonderful things God has done for you in the past. But it's also great to know that you can stand firm and let the Lord fight for you in the present. And if you are in a situation right now and it seems impossible and it just seems like there's no way out, and if I can put it like this, the the way has not been made, the sea has not parted in front of you. 
Can I ask you to listen to the words of Moses when all the people around were filled with fear and freaking out at him? He says this, Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. In other words, what he's exhorting them to do is to stand firm. And to stand firm and endure through these impossible situations takes two things. And the first one is courage. Did you notice what Moses said is, is don't fear, but stand firm. In other words, standing firm takes courage. And we know this. When you're under fire, when people are having a go at you, when you're in an impossible situation and it feels like an enemy is all over you and is pursuing you, it takes courage to simply stand firm. And what I want to exhort you all to do today is if you're in that kind of situation, is to stand firm, is to be courageous. You know, perhaps you're in a situation right now, you can't see your way out of it. Perhaps that situation is that people are just attacking you because of your faith. They're telling you the things that you believe are, uh, are silly, they're sort of challenging you. Really, and, and perhaps you're in a position where under that attack and all the unpleasantness of that, you're feeling like you kind of want to run away or compromise or water it down and say, well, maybe, well, can I exhort you? Don't be scared. Stand firm. Be courageous. Or perhaps you're here and you're a, a young person and there's just uh, lots of fear is coming in the shape of peer pressure. You know, there's people who live in a completely different way to you and perhaps the biblical standards by which you live by, especially in the area of things like sexuality and stuff like that, perhaps seem quaint and strange to them and so on. And again, you're tempted to run away or to fit in with the crowd or to compromise. Can I exhort you? Don't do that. Be courageous. Stand firm. Or perhaps what you're uh, in fear of is simply fear itself. To parrot, was that Kennedy, I think? Maybe it's that. Maybe it's in this impossible situation. You just feel like fear is all around. And every now and again, you forget about it. And every now and again, you just feel it. It just grips you. We, we have not been given a spirit which keeps us in slavery to fear, but a spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. A spirit which leads us into freedom. And you might think, well, I've got to be scared. There's nothing I can do. But actually, there is. You can stand firm. <laughs> See, standing firm just doesn't mean being in activity, do nothing. Actually, standing firm is a thing. It's being courageous. Albert Moller, the head of the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, gave a talk once, um, and he was, he was playing with words. You know we ha how we have that expression, don't just stand there, do something. He gave a talk saying, don't just do something, stand there. And it's true. Sometimes that's all we can do, and it's what the Lord is calling you to do here, I believe, in that impossible situation. Take courage and stand firm. But it doesn't just take courage to stand firm. It takes faith as well. So if you notice, Moses doesn't say to the people, stand and fight. Rather, what he says is, stand and let the Lord fight for you. And that's what I'm calling you to do today. Stand firm and have the faith, the trust, that actually the Lord can fight your battles on your behalf better than you ever could. And the Israelites should know this, because actually the Lord has been fighting their battles right throughout this passage. See, when the nine plagues came in the first place, it's easy for us to miss this as modern readers, but those plagues aren't just God being a bit creative, you know, his frogs, okay, I've already done frogs, let's go for locusts or anything like that. No, these are actually uh, strategically planned plagues. Every single one of them is attacking one of Egypt's gods. You see, in those days, you didn't just go to war with your enemy. You went up against your enemy and your enemy's gods. 
And Egypt had a whole pantheon of different gods. And every single one of those plagues is a blow against those gods. Let me give you some examples. There was uh, the god Harpy, the god of the Nile. And so what does God do? He turns the Nile to blood, showing who's in control. There was a god called Heket, who was in the form of a frog. And God rains down frogs everywhere. I love that one. Kind of like, oh, you like frogs. Here's frogs. <laughs> uh, there was the god Ra, or Re, the sun god. And so what does God do? He turns the sun to darkness. What's he doing? He's showing who's in control here. What he's saying is, I, the God of the Hebrew slaves, am greater than you, Pharaoh, because Pharaoh was considered a God as well, and all of the gods of Egypt put together. I'm in control, you're not in control. And he's saying to the Israelites, in their fear and everything like that, he's saying to them, I am greater than every single one of the enemies that you fear. My name is greater than the name of Heket, of Harpy, against Ra. I am greater than... And God is saying the same thing to you today. Whatever you fear, it probably has a name. And God is greater than all of those enemies, all those things you fear, all those things you're coming up against. The name of Jesus is the greatest name of all. Jesus is a greater name than cancer. Jesus is a greater name than fear, than anxiety, than a bully boss. Whatever your enemy is, Jesus is greater than all of it. And God is calling you in this impossible situation to stand firm and endure through it. Do you notice Moses is finishing, finishes by saying, you have only to be still. And that's what God is asking some of you to do today, to be still Psalm 46, to be still and know that he is God. So let that peace rest on you, that God is fighting for you. Stand firm, be courageous, and trust that he can fight on your behalf. And the third thing we can do, the third thing I'd say to that Israelite, and the third thing I'd say to you in this situation is this. When it comes to that point that God makes a way when the waters of the Red Sea actually part and there's a way out, step forward in faith. Do we see this? God says to Moses, raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the night, that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left. What I want you to notice here is that God doesn't just take them out of their situation. He doesn't just grab them up and chuck them all the way over the Red Sea so they land there. He doesn't get them out in that sense. What he does instead is he makes a way for them and then they have to take that way, if you like. Does that make sense? And I believe, it's my contention, that some of you are actually in a situation where you've been standing firm and enduring and being in that impossible situation for so long that actually you've, you've kind of got stuck. And actually, God has already made a way for you. He's already calling you forward, but you're staying in that situation. Almost like that Israelites, you're, you're wanting to almost stay and go back to slavery, to bondage. And he's saying he's made a way. And he's calling some of you to step forward in faith. Uh, a few weeks ago, it was my, uh, my boy Jack, who's uh, four years old. I was going to say my little boy. He gets very angry when I says that. He's, uh, he's a big boy, of course. It's like I've said, my zebra, Jack. He's like, why would you call me a little boy? I'm clearly a big boy. Anyway, 
we went to his um, playgroup sports day. And it was very nice too. And we, we were standing there on the sidelines ready to watch all the races along with all the other mums and dads and, and, and chatting and so on. And uh, we were watching Jack race, obviously. And it's his first race came about. You know, he did well. He'd done even better if one other kid hadn't got in his lane and stepped out of their end. But uh, I've decided I'll let that go. I'm not going to take it any further. It just looks you know, too serious. But... <clears throat> But the second race he was in was a beanbag race. They had to pick up a beanbag, run forward, drop it in a bucket, pick up the bucket, and then run to the finish line. And the, uh, the lady, the playgroup grown-up, as he calls them, um, she, uh, she said, on your marks, get set, go. And man, he just, he just leapt out. He was way ahead of everybody else. He grabbed that beanbag, he stuck it down in that bucket, picked the bucket up, and he just started racing ahead. I was thinking, my goodness, he's fast. He was like five, six yards ahead of all the others. And then about 20 yards to go to the finishing line, all of a sudden, it was like he was so far ahead he couldn't see anybody else around, he just began to sort of doubt himself. And so he turned round to look back. And as he turned round, he slowed down and then pretty much came to a complete stop. I don't know if you've been to these kind of things. It's really embarrassing, isn't it, when you hear like one of the parents, one of the dads, like sort of call out to their child and sort of taking it all too seriously. Um, it's even more embarrassing when you realise that voice you've heard is your own. You know. <laughs> <clears throat> Because he was running, and one minute I'm clapping away, thinking, well done, it's, you know, it's the taking part that counts and stuff. And then at some point when he turns around and he's actually stopping, I'm going, oh my goodness, Jack, go, go. <laughs> there can be only one Jack. And then I sort of, sort of just about regained my composure. But he, he heard me, he turned his head back round, and he made it to the end. The photo finished, but I'm pretty sure he still won. Okay? Now, laying aside that it's not particularly important, okay, it's only a, <laughs> a playgroup sports day, bearing in mind this is a sports day with four-year-olds, three-year-olds, and some two-year-olds, and, and also one with the egg and spoon race, the egg is actually attached to the spoon, so maybe we shouldn't take it too seriously. But what I was thinking about, when I was, I was thinking, why did he turn around? The path was clear before him. All he had to do was just go forward. But it was because he couldn't see all around him and he began to doubt and he wanted to know what was going on around him and so he looked back. And I don't know if you've noticed, but when you're supposed to be going forward and you look back, it's, it's pretty hard to keep going or at least to keep going and stay on track. But I was there as his father on the sidelines and I could see much more than he could see. I could see everything of his whole situation all around him. And I could shout out, perhaps less embarrassingly if I do it at sports, <laughs> sports days to come, but go on my boy, keep going. And some of you, you've been through an impossible situation and you're feeling a bit bruised and a bit battered and a bit vulnerable as a result. And you know there's a way being made for you by the Lord and you're stepping forward into that, but you're beginning to doubt yourself, you're beginning to doubt the Lord and you're not knowing what's going on in your surroundings. So you want to stop, you want to look back, you want to have a look around. But actually your father is there on the sidelines, your heavenly father who can see way more than you can see and he's there shouting, come on, my boy, come on, my girl, keep going. And I want to say to some of you, you just need to keep going. You just need to trust him. You just need to step forward in faith. But you might say to me, well, it's all well and good for this Israelite, Tom. That's great for them. They can stand on the shores of the Red Sea. They can look back to this amazing event of the Passover. They can see the sea split before them and they can step forward. They can know that God fought for them through the plagues. It's easy for them in this case, but, but their story is not my story. And what I want to say to you is this. Yes, it is. The story of the Passover, the story of the escape through the Red Sea, actually that is our story. In fact, even better than that, 
The story of the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea is just a foreshadow of the reality which is our story in Christ. The Apostle Paul writing in Colossians 2.17 said this about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Law, the Old Ways, the stories we read about. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, we look at that Israelite that was born into slavery to Egypt and when the angel of the Lord came over was under the penalty of uh, judgment. And we can actually say it's, it's the same for us. We were born into slavery to sin and under the penalty of sin. But that Israelite was freed out of that slavery and from under that penalty. Why? Because a year old lamb, a lamb in the prime of its life, a lamb without blemish, died as its substitute. And the blood of that lamb was covering them, sheltered them from that judgment. And it's the same for us. We were in the slavery of sin and under the penalty of sin, we were in bondage. But because of the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, a lamb without sin, a lamb without blemish, a lamb in the prime of his life, died in our place as a substitute. And we come out from under that penalty of sin because we are sheltered by the blood of the lamb. And then we are guided not by a cloud by day and a fire by night, but we are guided by the Lord himself in the form of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. And we pass through the waters, not of the Red Sea, but the waters of baptism. And where are we now? We're on our way in freedom. We're on our way to the promised land. We're not, yet there, not there yet, but we're on the way. This is our story. In fact, our story is even greater than this. So I'd say this to you. You were in an impossible situation once. You're in slavery to sin and under the penalty of sin. But from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and by the blood of the Lamb, you have been brought into freedom. He's already freed you from the ultimate impossible situation. Why can't he get you through whatever you're in or whatever you're looking at now? Thank you for listening. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you that you love us. Father, we thank you that you sent your only son to die in our place, Lord, that you might free us from that impossible situation. And Lord, I pray now the words that have been shared, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you'll just come and meet with people that we might all encounter afresh the God who makes a way. In Jesus' name, amen.